Good morning, everybody. If you need an outline or a Bible or a pen, a gene is available to help you get that. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders at our church, the, the head of our preaching team. We continue this morning our study of the book of Exodus. In the Old Testament, this morning we come to chapter 23, which if you have one of the church Bibles is on page 41. And this week's passage speaks directly to a number of issues facing our society. And when that is the case, we must get specific as we speak to ourselves, as we speak to one another and to our age. This week's passage speaks to a number of those issues, including one of the greatest atrocities committed daily against an underprivileged people group. The murder of approximately one million unborn children each year in more than 1,600 licensed medical clinics around the country. Now, some of you who are here today may have had an abortion in your past, or you may have persuaded someone into an abortion. I know, we know that many people seek abortions because they're young and they're, they're terrified and they don't know what else to do. And, and if that's the case for you, you need to know that Jesus' blood can cover you in this. If you trust in Jesus, you are not forever a terrible person, but you are a treasured daughter of the king or a treasured son of the king. Jesus covers his people's guilt and he will never hold your past against you. With that said, however, we must confess that we all have blood on our hands. We are a part of this society. Even those who never commit the atrocity of abortion themselves, they are guilty. We are guilty as members of this community that allows this to happen. We as a people have turned the womb, a chamber designed to give life, we have turned that into a tomb, dealing out death by the millions. We as a people have taken our medical clinics designed to promote health and well-being, and we have made them into slaughterhouses. Last year, a group of people went undercover to expose the dark business of Planned Parenthood. You may have seen some of their videos online. How Planned Parenthood is trading in fetal body parts to the highest bidder. That which claims, that organization which claims to promote life and health actually deals out some of the sickest kinds of death and destruction. Our passage this morning ends with a somewhat cryptic instruction, which I believe summarizes the whole section for us and targets this abortion industry. The, the last half of Exodus 23, verse 19 says, You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And you're thinking, what on earth are you talking about? We are here in, in Exodus 23. We're in a section 
of the book from, from 20 to 23, uh, where we get specific laws about particular situations. And actually, in chapter 20, we got the Ten Commandments, which were all the broad principles. In chapters 21 through 23, we see those Ten Commandments applied to daily life. The Sixth Commandment states in chapter 20, You shall not murder. And this instruction in 2319, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, it explains that ninth commandment further. Because God created a mother's milk to give life and to nurture her young. And God says you shall not turn that life-giving liquid into a mechanism for death. It's okay to slaughter a goat to eat it. It's okay to boil a goat. It's even okay to boil a goat in milk. But you must never boil the young goat in its own mother's milk. That would be a twisted caricature of reality. So also for us, we must avoid allowing channels of life to become instruments of death. There is a time and a place for death in Scripture, the field of battle for a just cause, the hospice for a sufferer's final days, the execution chamber for a criminal's lawful conviction. But schools are not for shooting. Hospitals are not for euthanizing. Clinics are not for aborting. Homes are not for fighting and yelling. Conversations are not for tearing down. And Bibles are not for thumping or berating. God has given us so many things to promote life and well-being. So as a church, let us use them well. As citizens of this country, let us Fight for their right use. Let me pray and ask God's help as we, we dig into this passage further. And then we'll see how the rest of this passage can help us to promote life through our social systems. Father in heaven, please help us as we come to your word, as we read your word. Help us to see how you want society, the very fabric of society, to promote life and to do good for people. And help us to work to this end in our families, in our church, and in our community. We pray you would help us to see this in Jesus' name. Amen. On your outline, you can see I want to cover this passage in two sections. We'll see, first, that blind justice does real good. And second, hard work promotes true rest. And in both of these things, we'll see why we must never boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Why that which is intended for life must not be used. For death. First, blind justice does real good. According to Wikipedia, since the 16th century, Lady Justice has often been depicted wearing a blindfold. You may have seen statues of Lady Justice. The blindfold represents impartiality, the ideal that justice should be applied without regard to wealth, power, or other status. Now we see the moral and philosophical basis for blind 
Lady Justice in this ancient text from the book of Exodus. Exodus 23, verses 1 through 9. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now, let's look at all the ways that God wants blind justice to govern both the law courts and public community. In verse 1, the governing principle here is that of truth. You shall not spread a false report. Now, it doesn't matter who started this report. It doesn't matter who you heard it from. That person could be otherwise trustworthy, noble, and influential in your life. But if the report is false, you must not spread it. What that means is that this puts the burden on us to investigate whether any report is true before we even consider spreading it. Okay, before you tell somebody something, you need to know for a fact that it is true. That means it is never appropriate to say to someone, hey, did you hear about what so-and-so did to so-and-so? I don't care if you're talking about people or organizations or governments or anything. It's never appropriate to say that unless you have access to solid evidence that what you are sharing is true. Whether you've witnessed it and you're trying to expose it, that could be legitimate. And of course, you can share if it's necessary for you to share this report. And, you know, I really don't want to talk about this because when I say this to you, I condemn myself. I have way too often been guilty of spreading things spreading reports more because they were interesting than because I had evidence they were true. The governing principle is that of truth. The end of verse 1, he says, don't conspire with wicked people to do malice. Now, why might a reasonable person even consider conspiring with a wicked person to do malice? Potentially, those wicked people have promised you a kickback. Or maybe it's just what everybody else is saying. Or maybe the accusation makes sense to you, even if you weren't a direct eyewitness. And the accusation might help you to take down someone who is powerful, thus doing much indirect good. There are lots of reasons why we might do it. But regardless, God says, don't do it. Don't conspire with wicked people to do malice. Verse 2, don't side with the majority simply because it's the majority opinion. Just because ten witnesses all claimed the shooting was racially motivated 
doesn't mean you should claim it was racially motivated and spread it on social media. Unless you know it for a fact. Don't side with the majority. Over the last few years, many Christian leaders have followed the spirit of the age in even in shifting their views on topics like same-sex marriage to go with the majority. Let us take care to derive our views from Scripture independent of the majority. Verse 3, don't side with a poor man just because he is poor. This one really interests me. This is a key principle for us because we live in a culture, I think, that automatically gives the benefit of the doubt to alleged victims. If someone claims to have been abused or oppressed or hurt or deceived or treated unjustly by someone in authority, we assume their perspective is accurate and we act accordingly because they're, they're underprivileged in some way. And sometimes we might even end up spreading false reports as a result. Now, we will take every allegation seriously. If somebody comes to me and and has a claim of of some child abuse or molestation happening in our Sunday school department, I mean, I don't care how solid your evidence is. I'm going to take it seriously, and we're going to investigate to look into the evidence. But we must not side with a poor man. In other words, we must not side with the underprivileged only because they are underprivileged. This is not the way of justice. And consider this, that in the previous chapter, verse 24, God told us that he would kill those people who mistreat widows and orphans. And in verse 27 of the previous chapter, he said that in compassion, he hears the cries of the poor who are oppressed. You see, God really cares about the underprivileged. But he tells us right here that he considers partiality toward the poor in a lawsuit to be a perversion of justice. And we could go on. Justice must be blind toward the poor. It must be blind uh, looking in looking for truth and blind toward who is bringing the truth, blind to the majority. In verses 4 through 7, it, uh, justice must be blind even toward your enemies, toward people who hate you, who you think don't deserve justice. Help them when their donkey falls under the cart and they're struggling to get it out. You go and help that person in need. Be blind to the hostility. The application for us here is this. Our society, our community, our church, and our families all must be characterized by true justice. True justice is blind to social status, to race, to gender, to personality, to power. It is blind to financial backing, and it is blind to pre-existing hostility. These scriptures should motivate us to fight for truth, to resist evil, and do good. This means, for example, that we oppose abortion legislation that perverts justice by showing partiality toward one group of people over another group of people. This means that we work to understand the history of racial tensions in America, and we pay attention when people were mistreated or how they are mistreated. This means we cross bridges with people we feel uncomfortable with or even hostile toward. For example, around this town, you can't go anywhere without seeing many international folks. Now, I ask myself this question. If you saw, if you were out 
in the store or at a park or somewhere, and you saw a Muslim woman wearing the hijab, the head covering, and she dropped something and didn't notice, would you even stoop to pick it up for her and talk to her? Say, excuse me, ma'am, you dropped your child, (laughs) whatever it was. Now, I fully understand the cultural barriers involved. I've struggled with this. I saw her drop it, and should I wait for someone? Am I allowed to talk to her? I mean, this this thing on her head is like a fortress blocking me out. That's what it feels like to me. This is my prejudice that I'm just being vulnerable about. Would I or would you extend the same courtesy to her that you would extend to a fellow church member in the same circumstance? Is your sense of justice blind to the differences between you? Our lives as the redeemed people of God must be characterized by doing good for others. And justice can only do real good if it is blind. But understanding blind justice is not enough. And let me be clear, justice is never blind to the truth. Justice is blind to the people involved. Blind justice is not enough. We also must weave the doing of good, the giving of life, into the fabric of our society, our communities, even our routines. And so the second part of this passage tells us about our routines. We need routines of hard work that promote true rest. Verses 10 through 19. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now this is the last set of instructions for these the, the people at this point. Next week's passage will be an epilogue of sorts to this law code. And it will tell them what to expect when they enter the, the land God has promised to them. But, but here, uh, in this section, this last group of instructions, thematically we're back on the topic that the instructions began with. And these instructions, chapters 21 through 23, the next chapter will label them with a title called The Book of the Covenant. 
And so the book of the covenant ends where it began with the worship of God. That's where we started at the end of chapter 20. And so here he's expanding on the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And he's expanding on the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now this passage is also an important example for us of how things have changed for us today now that we're in a different culture and a different time of history after Jesus came. The New Testament is very, very clear that we do not need to keep these festivals or rituals anymore. And in fact, returning to them is considered a a major step backwards and a step away from Christ and what he has done. However, even with that said, there is still profit for us in studying this passage. There are some important principles here that we are to understand about the character of God and why he had those people to do these festivals at that point in time. We need to understand the thinking behind these festivals and what that teaches us about Jesus. So let's dive in to understand God's character through these rituals. First is a set of rules about the Sabbath year, verses 10 and 11. Verse 10, he says that you are to work your land for six years, and then verse 11, let the land rest on the seventh year. Why? Why are they to do this? Perhaps this is the best agriculturally, but I will leave it to my my friends Eric Rank, Dan Chokas, to let you know their expertise in agriculture as to whether that would be helpful to let the land lie fallow every seven years. But the reason the text gives in verse 11 is, so that the poor of your people may eat, and then the beasts may eat. You see, God wants his people to take care of the poor among them, and even to take care of creation, the animals out there. To be Christian is to be a social activist. And to be Christian is to love animal rights. But notice how they are to take care of the poor. You see, God is showing them how to do it right here. How they are to take care of the poor is not by creating a welfare system that hands out free stuff to anyone who will come. The way they care for the poor is by allowing the poor to come and pick their own food that has grown wild on their land every seven years. This fits with the biblical expectation that if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. And of course, let me make a caveat, this is not referring to the disabled or the infirm, but to able-bodied people who are simply underprivileged. Presumably, the entire land is not having their resting year at the same time, but it's likely that each farm would be on a different schedule as to when that Sabbath year takes place. So that there's always some farm somewhere where the poor can go and harvest their own wild crops to eat and be provided for. Now, we are not obligated to follow this Sabbath year ritual in every detail, but perhaps we can think about how to care for the poor or the underprivileged in our community, in our church, and even in our broader community. How can we take what we have and make it occasionally and freely available to those willing to come and work for it? This helps not only with the material poverty that people suffer, but also with the spiritual and the volitional poverty that makes up the whole person. How can we take care of the whole person? 
And I honestly, I'm not sure what this would look like for us. I wish I had some specific suggestions. I would love to hear whatever ideas you have. We'll have a sharing and prayer time after the sermon in small groups where we can discuss how could we do this better as a church uh, to, 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 to exercise these kinds of principles to take care of the poor. But let's move on. Second, we have a set of instructions about the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day, verse 12. The Israelites were to work hard for six days and then rest on the seventh day. Now, why were they to do that? Look at what it says. Interestingly, it's not so that they can get a day each week to goof off. You see, it's so that they can give rest to their ox and to their donkey. See, we're animal rights activists. They can give rest to the visitors in their homes, the aliens who are among them. And even they can give rest to the children of their servants. Providing for people, for the weakest of the weak. In other words, what this passage is saying that a great teacher would later come to say, the the purpose of the Sabbath, uh, uh, sorry, uh, he would say that man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. That's what Jesus says in the Gospels. The purpose of the Sabbath is to give rest to others. We were not made so that we could follow all kinds of complicated Sabbath rules. But the Sabbath was made so that we could give life to the world. The purpose of the Sabbath is to give rest, to be a blessing, to serve, to promote life, to promote the good of the people around us. This is exactly why Jesus had so many conflicts with the Jewish leaders of his day over the Sabbath. Most of his conflicts with them was over the Sabbath. Because they had turned their Sabbath, something that was designed to promote the public good and to give life. And they had turned it into an implement of pain and burden and death. They had made lots of rules that burdened people with pain and guilt. They were unwilling to do good, to serve others, and to promote life. They didn't like it if Jesus healed a sick person on the Sabbath or if his disciples went and picked their own food on the Sabbath. But you have to understand that, that that view of theirs was not a biblical view of the Sabbath. And so when Jesus fought them, Jesus was not fighting against the Old Testament view of the Sabbath. Jesus was fighting for the Old Testament view of the Sabbath, against the twisted misconceptions of it. Now, in both sets of instructions we see here, the Sabbath year and the Sabbath day, you see the common theme? These rituals, these patterns of the calendar, these social structures were set in place to do good to others. They were designed to give life, to benefit the public welfare. And so just as we saw in the first section with blind justice, now we see with these principles of hard work. You work hard in your land for six years so that you have something to give on the seventh. You work hard in your work for six days so that you can give other people rest on the seventh day. This hard work puts you in a position to do much good in the seventh year or on the seventh day. The Sabbath isn't just about getting time off. It actually takes planning and follow-through. It requires establishing routines that put you in a position to help others. How does this apply to us? 
I'm not going to say you have to keep one day in seven as a Sabbath. You might want to do that. Some consider that a good idea, but some find that difficult. But the point is this. The application is simply work hard so that you can do good for others and give life to others. What does that mean? Let me give some examples. Avoid becoming over busy. If every moment of your schedule is booked, you'll never be able to do good when an unexpected opportunity arises. Here's another example. Make commitments carefully. Of course, we need to be committed to certain things. We must be committed to the most important things in life. Uh, if you're part of a, of a family, have some meals together. Enjoy time as a family. Play with your kids. If you're a student, get your homework done on time. These are things you need to commit to. Attending church services, paying your bills. There are all kinds of things that, that we need to commit to. But don't be hasty to commit to so many things. In fact, committing to too many things because you're afraid to let people down. Because then you won't be in a position where you can do good to others. Another suggestion, consider budgeting some of your salary, some of your income, for giving. And it seems like a no-brainer. Of course, we budget to give. Give, Commit some of your giving to the church to help the church do good. Commit some of your giving to other missions to help spread the gospel around the world. One of the things Aaron and I started doing a number of years back is we also have a budget for unplanned giving where we save up money every month with the intention of giving it away. But we don't know what we're going to give it to. And we wait to see what opportunities God provide. And as we come across people with needs or opportunities that come up, we've already got money set aside so we can respond immediately. Oh, your car broke down. Well, here's some money we saved up to help you. And it's just budgeted for that purpose. Plan some other suggestions. You can plan to have people over to your house. Schedule time uh, schedule time for you to set aside your work, your hobbies, your alone time. Schedule some Sabbath time just so you can share what you have with others and get to know them. If you're participating in the Adopt-A-Student with the church, you have opportunities to make the most of it. Of course, families are, are taking time and scheduling time to have students over. Students, why not? Work hard to get your homework done on Saturday so you have more time to spend with people on Sunday. And not just with your adopted family, but with others, the church community or other students or part of your community. You can shovel your neighbor's sidewalk. You can mow their grass. You can do all kinds of, of things to do good to others and see what God will do. Children, you have an opportunity to do good at church. Maybe you can find a job that you can do and help out with at church to do good to others. It might mean you have to get ready to come a little earlier with your parents so you can help hand out some things at the door or help set up chairs, or you might have to do other work to make give yourself time to do it, but you can think about things you might like to do that could serve others because everybody needs a job, and we need the children to have some jobs too. The options are endless, and you don't have to take every one of my suggestions. The most important thing is that you work these things into your daily routines 
into your weekly routines, into your annual routines. Develop routines in your life that give you time for doing good. The final section here uh, turns to the three annual festivals uh, that they were to celebrate. And um, he covers them when each of them takes place in verses 14 to 17, when they take place relative to the agricultural cycle in verses 18 and 19, I think, he highlights the main idea of each feast in order with those last three instructions. With the Passover, uh, you're dealing with your blood and the unleavened bread and having no leftover fat until the morning, focusing on remembering the haste with which you came out. Uh, the second one, he talks about giving the, the feast of the first fruits, giving God the best of what we've got. And then that final instruction about that young goat and his mother's milk, I think, is a connection to that third festival, which was the Feast of Ingathering, where uh, in the book of Numbers, that festival would become associated with Israel's role to be a blessing to all nations, to give life to the world. And so he puts this young goat instruction right in there as a picture of what that festival was about. That which was designed for life must never be used as a mechanism for death. So, we see that Israel had a role to play in the world in the sight of Yahweh, her God. And that role was to give life, to be a blessing to all the nations, to do good to others, to lead everyone to the worship of the true God, the maker of heaven and earth, and to help lost sinners become reconciled to their master. But Israel, as you read through the, the Old Testament, Israel never really succeeded at that role such that when God himself showed up in the flesh, they didn't even recognize him. Jesus came along, and instead of worshiping him, they argued with him about how he had to wash his hands, about how often he should be fasting, about what sort of low lights he should not be uh, mingling with, and about proper, respectable decorum in church. They were definitely not trying to help people to improve their lives or draw close to God. Israel the milk of God, as you will, had become a place of death and debilitating oppression. Their churches were not filled with righteous worshipers, but in the Gospels we see their synagogues were filled with demons. Almost every time Jesus is in a synagogue, there are demons there. Their teaching had become focused on how to retain or increase personal power, and their hopes had shifted from saving the world to simply becoming free of Roman rule. And let's be honest about our generation. We're not really much better. We fight and quarrel. We murder millions of defenseless innocents. We look out for ourselves. We seek loopholes that enable us to get our own way. We pass increasingly burdensome legislation. And we lay oppressive taxes unprecedented in our history. Families are breaking. Relationships are breaking. Racial tension crackles unbelievably. The rich grow richer and the poor grow poorer. Everything is breaking, but know this. Jesus came to deal with this mess. The Lord has given us righteous standards, but Israel couldn't do it, and we can't do it. We will never live up to what God asks us to do, but one could live up to it, and he did. Jesus came to give life to the world. In John 12, he said, I have come into the world as light 
so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the Jesus we preach. He is the one who came and who died for our sins and rose again from the grave. He is the God we worship. He is the one who works with us to give life to the world. He is teaching his people to do good through blind justice and through hard work. And the name of no other God must ever be found on our lips. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you as the only God. And you have called us to do real good in the world, to promote blind justice that will serve the truth, to, you've called us to work hard that we might promote true rest for others. Please help us, Lord, to walk in your ways, to love your people, and to be agents of, of grace and peace and delight to the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.